Hello there. Thanks for listening to the Elevate Christian Church podcast. We exist as a church to connect people with God and each other. Today's message comes to us from our associate minister and worship leader, Will Click. We hope this inspires you, grows you, and challenges you in your faith and your walk with Jesus. Enjoy! So the series that we're in for this summer uh, is called Gone Fishing. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, uh, we've been talking about stories from the Gospels where uh, there's fishing involved or fish. And so the story that we're going to be in today clearly fits that bill as it happens around a lake and there's uh, some fish involved. So without any further ado, we're going to jump right into the text for this morning. And it's found in the Gospel of John, uh, starting in verse 1 of chapter 6. And then we'll read it and then we'll talk about it a little bit. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So normally when this passage is being preached, uh, a lot of time is spent talking about the miracle. That's the most obvious thing is talking about the miracle. But this morning, I'm going to approach it a little differently I want us to focus on the last line of this story that says, Jesus, knowing that they intended to make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So two questions that I have uh, from that line. Why after this event and not the previous miraculous signs where he was healing the sick, did the people then want to make Jesus their king? Okay, that's the first question. Why did they want to make him king after this event and not the previous miraculous events? The second question is, why did Jesus resist and withdraw from letting it happen? Why did he not become their king at that point? And I think that the fact that the story ends with this statement is indicating that everything that just happened is somehow connected to this uh, idea here at the end. It's related Jesus already stated in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. So I believe that maybe by John telling this story and and the way that he tells tells this story, it is showing how Jesus 
is actually fulfilling the law and the prophets. So let me explain. Uh, today's message I'm calling Leader Line, uh, in keeping with the gone fishing theme. For those of you that are fishing enthusiasts, you'll know what a leader line is. Uh, but for those of you that don't know what it is, basically a leader line is an additional piece of line that you add to your, your regular fishing line that is then attached to the hook or the lure uh, to present the bait as naturally as possible to the fish so that it doesn't spook them away. So it's supposed to be uh, as invisible or undetectable as possible. And like a leader line that is nearly invisible to see in the water, there is a theme or a storyline that is happening in this text that sits just below the surface. And it's hard to see and we can easily overlook it. And that leader line that sits just under the surface of the whole Jewish tradition in the Old Testament, as well as this gospel story, is what's called the Abrahamic blessing. We find the Abrahamic blessing all the way back in the book of Genesis in chapter 12, where God promises to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So from the very beginning of the Israelites as a people, their formation and sole purpose was based on being chosen by God to be a nation unlike the other nations, a nation that blesses other nations. So to put it even simpler than that, they were blessed to be a blessing. That's it. And that's, that's all that they were originally supposed to do. And so maybe to take it even a step further than that, I would use the word family instead of nation, because that's what a nation was anyways, was a group of people who shared the same ancestry. So essentially what the Israelites are saying is that our family exists to bless or serve, honor, support, favor, but to bless the other families of the world. And the reason why I'm comparing this blessing, this Abrahamic blessing, to a leader line in fishing is because everything we read in the rest of the Old Testament about the history of the Israelites is measured against this. It's the theme that is present throughout the scriptures, and every story is being told within that framework of whether or not God's chosen people were living up to that standard of blessing others. It is the thing that is just below the surface in all of Scripture that, like a leader line, can be hard to detect if we're not looking for it. So let me very quickly give you the short version of how the Abrahamic blessing is present in the Old Testament and how it's used to determine whether the Israelites were being faithful or unfaithful in this call to be a blessing. And then we'll go back to the gospel story that we read earlier. So first off, after the initial Abrahamic blessing uh, to Abraham, where God promises offspring, descendants to uh, Abraham, Abraham finally has uh, his son Isaac, and then the descendants just start coming. The whole thing blows up, and just after a few generations, those descendants end up being enslaved to the Egyptians in Egypt. And how can they fulfill their end of the promise to bless other nations if all their people are being oppressed? So God liberates the Israelites from their oppressors through a guy named Moses. And it's in that event where God reveals himself to Moses as Yahweh, or I am. He reveals his name as Yahweh. Which, by the way, anytime that name was used after this event in Exodus, 
uh, it was always used as a, a callback or a reference to this event in Scripture. So the name Yahweh was always used to mean the God who liberates the oppressed. Okay, so fast forward about 400 or so years to King Solomon. Part of the original plan for the Israelites to be unlike the other nations of the world was to be led by God himself and not by a king. But somewhere along the way, the Israelites took a step in the wrong direction and wanted to have a king just like the other nations. And so God lets it happen. And King Solomon is the third king uh, since they started having kings and is typically seen as one of the greatest kings of Israel because of the size of his kingdom and his apparent wisdom. And of course, he built the temple of the Lord. But even this quote-unquote great king is painted in a very negative light for the way he was completely not measuring up to the standard of blessing the nations. So in chapters 9 and 10 of 1 Kings, you can read how Solomon was actually being criticized for the ways he had lost the script when it came to the Abrahamic blessing. He used forced labor to build the temple of the Lord, which is ironic because King Solomon, whose people were once enslaved themselves, then enslaved other people to build the temple to Yahweh God, the God who liberates the oppressed. And the reader is supposed to see that as a shocking incongruence with God's plan. We also see the number 666 is used when describing the amount of wealth that Solomon was accumulating, which we know and see in the book of Revelation as, as being a, a bad number, a, a, an evil number. So it's not good that they're using this to describe something about King Solomon. Basically what they're saying of Solomon is that his actions as king was evil because he wasn't using his wealth or his position as a king to bless others. And to top it all off, we find out that King Solomon spent more time and more money building his own palace than he did the temple of the Lord because his palace was bigger than God's dwelling place. So apparently he needed a bigger house than God himself did. So without knowing first about this Abrahamic blessing, you can see how we might miss the, the scriptural critiques on Israel's own kings and their kingdoms. So now take all of that history and let's go back into the gospel story that we read and answer those two original questions about the story. Why did the people try to make Jesus king after this event and why did Jesus not do it? To answer the first question, the people tried to make Jesus king because they wanted him to be another king like Solomon a king who would start a revolution and defeat the mighty Roman Empire and restore Israel to its former glory, like the days of King Solomon. Jesus was doing all the things that a good king is supposed to do. He was providing for their needs. He was healing people. He was feeding them, uh, which at the time was no small thing, since the economic situation of the Israelites at the time under Roman rule was tremendously terrible. And the line in the text about how much money it would take uh, to just give everyone one bite of bread uh, is in, in, indicative of how uh, literally people were starving. So it's no wonder that people wanted Jesus to be king in that moment because the current kingdom situation under the Romans was not working out in the Israelites' favor. So then to answer the second question, Jesus didn't become their king in that moment 
Because he is, he's being true to the Abrahamic blessing, which is to bless the nations, not conquer them. In the original plan for God's chosen people, no one person was supposed to be king over them. God was their king. So I think Jesus is showing us that there's a way to be in the world that it's not us versus them. And that's why in other places in the Gospels, Jesus would teach things like love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Or he would say things like the kingdom of heaven is like a little bit of yeast that is worked into the dough. Jesus seems to be trying to teach people to live a life that's not concerned with trying to be in power or in charge, the top of the totem pole, so to speak, but rather how to bless the world wherever you are and with whoever is in charge. And I think what this gospel story is pulling out and showing us is that there's a, there's a, there's a current kingdom empire situation uh, that's established by the Romans and then there's a kingdom that wants to be established in place of the Romans, which is Israel. And so while the Israelites are typically seen uh, in the stories as the good guys and the Romans the bad guys, Jesus rejects both kingdoms because they function the same. One on top, subjugating everyone else. And that is not living the Abrahamic blessing. So... What does all this mean for us then? I think Jesus might be encouraging us to go back and remember the thing that started it all in the Abrahamic blessing, which is we're blessed to be a blessing. We can really make being a Christian that simple. How can I bless others in a real practical and personal way? How can you use whatever resources you have, whatever time, money, influence, whatever you have, how can you use it? To bless others. And so as I start to wind down here, I, I want to offer some practical application points that we find in Jesus' own actions here in this text that, that we can imitate in our own spiritual journey. Uh, from the text, I see two practices for us that if we can actually learn how to do these well, then it can greatly benefit our capacity to be a person who blesses other people with our lives. And those two practices are recall and withdrawal. With recall and withdrawal. So let's talk about recall for a moment. Jesus was able to resist the pressure of his own people wanting him to be king in the way they wanted him to be king because he is recalling that Abrahamic blessing. Sometimes we have to go back in our own personal history and experience and remember our original purpose or mission to keep us grounded and on track. Uh, take, for example, marriage therapy. When a couple falls out of love, uh, it doesn't happen uh, immediately. It happens over a gradual period of time, and then they start asking the question, how did we get to this point? How did we get to a point where we don't love each other anymore? And so part of their work becomes uh, recalling their history. Go back and remember the reasons why you fell in love in the first place, the things that you originally loved about your spouse, and then get back to it. Or maybe uh, if you're in school, you're in college, or maybe uh, later in life as, a, as an adult, you went back and, and uh, finished your degree, and when it gets difficult, you ask, 
Why did I do this? Why am I killing myself right now trying to manage a full-time career and also trying to finish my degree? What am I doing here? You go back and recall. You remember why you started it in the first place. Oh, I wanted to show my kids the importance of education, or I wanted to make a better life for my family. You have to recall those original beginnings to stay rooted and resolved when the pressure comes at you. King David, even in his own faults, was still considered to be a man after God's own heart. He writes about his own fight with trying to stay focused and on the right path. He says in Psalm 119, uh, 51 through 56, The arrogant mock me unmercifully, but I do not turn from your law. I remember, Lord, your ancient laws, and I find comfort in them. Indignation grips me because of the wicked who have forsaken your law. Your decrees are the, the theme of my song wherever I lodge. In the night, Lord, I remember your name that I may keep your law. This has been my practice. I obey your precepts. We tend to forget if we don't have a regular practice of intentional recalling. We recall the past to stay resolute in the present so we don't deviate in the future. And then the second practice that we see uh, Jesus do that we can imitate is withdrawal. Jesus withdrew from the crowd to be by himself. I think he fled the situation not because he didn't want to be king, but actually he fled the situation because he did want to be king. Uh, There's a crowd of his own community that are telling him how great he is and how awesome he is, and we want you to lead us. We want you to be our king. So imagine how flattering and appealing that must have been. But it wasn't his purpose. Jesus needed to withdraw himself from a tempting situation in order to stay true to his calling. Sometimes the healthiest thing that we can do on a spiritual level is to learn when to withdraw ourselves when necessary. Maybe you need to withdraw from social media or watching the news 24-7. To be honest, for me, that was one of the areas that I had to cut out of my life. Um, Probably about two years ago now, uh, I deleted my Facebook account uh, because I felt that was the healthiest thing for me to do at the time, was to just cut it out uh, of my life completely uh, to be honest, I, I was tired of seeing all the people that I love, uh, not all of them, but a lot of people that I love and care for uh, and, and people that I know have a history with and see all the nasty, horrible things that they were saying about other people. And, and it was affecting me emotionally, spiritually. Um, and when I was in relationship with that person outside of the screen and being on Facebook, when I was actually in person with these people, it was affecting how I related to them. And I didn't like what, what it was doing to me towards that person. And, and so that's one of the, the biggest reasons that I ended up having to cut it out of my life. And I'm not saying that, that you have to delete all your social media accounts, but maybe you need to at least find some kind of rhythm uh, where you're withdrawing from it at times so that you're not just firehosing yourself with 24-7 media coming at you all the time. Some of you might recognize, though, that uh, you probably should delete it from your life altogether. But we have to be honest with ourselves and discern how these things might be affecting us and then take the necessary steps to a healthy withdrawal. 
It could also be that we need to learn how to withdraw from certain people or situations. Maybe you have to practice withdrawing yourself from certain conversations, uh, certain conversations at work, perhaps. Or you find that whenever you're around a particular person, this person has some kind of strange power over you and you become a different person when you're around them and you do things that's not like you and you don't like the person that you become when you're around this person. Maybe it's time to withdraw from that relationship and spend some time by yourself. It could be that by yourself on a mountain is where you learn who you really are and what you're here to do. Consider the words in 1 Corinthians 10, 14. It says, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Or in 1 Timothy 6, 10 through 12, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. With discernment, humility, and the Spirit's help, we can learn to recognize those areas in our life when it's time to withdraw ourselves or when it's more appropriate to run away. So I hope we can all learn from Jesus the the spiritual practice of recall and withdraw so that we're able to position ourselves to fulfill the Abrahamic blessing, to be a blessing to others. And in so doing, our lives become that spiritual act of worship that is holy and pleasing to God. One final scripture, and I'll end with this, that that really kind of sums up this idea. It's kind of the, the Christian version of what's been said in Judaism from the beginning. Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And that's what blessing others looks like. We hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast today. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate or partner with us in what God is doing here, check out our website at elevatecc.com. Until next time, God bless you and thanks again.